The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, in the words of that last song, we are, in a sense, speaking to ourselves and directing our own souls, ourselves, to arise and to take hope in these truths. Now, in prayer, we direct our, our words and our attention to you and ask you to make that so. Would you then, Father, please cause our souls, ourselves, to arise and to shake off all guilty fear and to hear you as a father. I can say that knowing that we all know what it's like to hear a good father, even though we've had bad fathers. We have some sense of, of you, of a fathering God that you are. We know human fathers are attempts to be reflections of that imperfectly so, but you are the Father that we are so sweetly drawn to. You are the Father who has so perfectly loved us. You are the Father who has given us life, life first physically, then life again spiritually drawn us to your side and spoken to us in tender love about our security now in your arms and the certainty of our security in the future under your promise and under your power. You are that kind of father to us. And would you cause that this morning to be real to us and to with that lift up ourselves to cause us to arise out of fear and and, and out of malaise and, and out of whatever particular thing afflicts us and, and may burden us and hold us down, to arise out of that and to, to live with joy, perhaps even while sorrowing because of present circumstances. To live with hope, perhaps even in the midst of, of current trouble. to do so because our eyes have seen the king and he's our dad. Cause that to happen this morning, please, Father. Would you lift up this people, not in, in some, in the end, empty hope in our own accomplishments or ability, but lift us up in, in the sure confidence of your ability, of your wonder, and of your vast, wide, long, high, deep love for us, your children. This is the reality in which we live, and it is easy to sink beneath it and lose sight of it like bobbing beneath the waves in an ocean and to, to lose sight of the shore, to not see the sky, 
but to just see the sinking in the water. Lift us up, cause us to arise. Give us hope. Towards that end, Lord, I pray you'd make your word clear and help us to, to think into it, to really to listen to your word with, with holy imagination. Not making up stuff with our imaginations, but holy, that is uh, a sacred, a set-aside imagination that is, that is conformed to you and then can see. Cause us to listen to the word like that be won over to you by it and then moved to follow your decrees. That's the pattern that you you tell us you will do in Ezekiel. You say you will put a new spirit in your people. You will take out the heart of stone and put into us a heart of flesh and you will put your spirit in us and move us to follow your decrees. Do that work this morning, Lord. We Even with us who already are your people, our, our hearts already have been softened and changed and your spirit already does live in us, but, but cause him to run in us, to, to fill us and to control us in new and fresh ways, to cause us to see and then move us to follow. Would you do that this morning? Spirit of God, would you own this time here in a powerful way and in particular ways because we each are in different seats right now. Meet us where we sit. Move us where we are, from where we are, to where we should be in pursuit of you and following you in hope and in joy. That's what I ask you to do this morning, Father. Cause our souls to arise for the truth of who you are as our Father, the Father who has saved us and will save us. And from that, Lord, would you stir in us loyal love. Do that, please. Open up your word to us. Give direction to this time. Honor Christ. Build the church. Bless your people. We ask you to do this in the name of Jesus, who wants that done. So please do it, Lord. Amen. turn our attention this morning once again to Luke chapter 10 and the passage which includes the parable of the Good Samaritan. We looked at this whole passage last week, the, the whole larger section, noting how Jesus takes a question put to him and then uses it as an opportunity to teach about an important aspect of discipleship. So disciples of Jesus, as we saw, are to be people who love the people around them with selfless service. I've seen clearly in the parable, there's a man robbed, you'll recall, beaten, left the side of the road for dead. And as two religious people come upon him, see him, and pass by doing nothing, we're surprised by that, shocked by that. And then a third man, a Samaritan, comes along and helps. He has compassion on this victim and then spends his personal effort and personal time and personal money selflessly serving this man in love so that he can be healed. He's a total stranger to him. He spends himself, selflessly serving, to help him, to do good to him. And Jesus' question at the end then really is a no-brainer. Who do you think proved to be the neighbor? Well, the man who had mercy on him. 
And obviously, it's also a no-brainer. We are to be like that, too, to love others, all others. That's a point made that kind of sneaks up on us in, in the parable as Jesus carefully tells it with the Samaritan as the hero. A Samaritan, it would have triggered a negative response in the listening, a sudden kind of surprising negative response in the listening audience. He's trying to say, love others, love all others, be a neighbor to all others, even those that you might not get along with. And let me show you who that might be, Stab. He kind of pokes them, surprises them by bringing up the Samaritan. All others, to selflessly serve them as an expression of our love towards God. Love towards God, love towards others, neighbor. That, that was last week with the main emphasis falling on the second half of that because that's where the, the passage goes, love your neighbor as yourself. However, the first paragraph, as we noted, begins with two things being stated as Jesus talks with the scribe and approves of what the scribe says as he speaks what's sometimes known as the great or the greatest commandment. And it's a, an inseparable pair. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And we gave more attention last week to and your neighbor as yourself. And this morning we're going to give a little more attention to the front half of that, the love of God half. And we're going to do that by approaching it out of the context of Luke. We're going to approach just that topic of the first part of that pair by looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is the passage to which that scribe and Jesus and in Matthew and in Mark, when there are other discussions about the same thing, they're all looking back to that passage in Deuteronomy. So we're going to go back there and look at a few verses there to think about half of this inseparable pair. We kind of looked at the second half last week, first half this week. So you can't really listen to these two sermons as standalones. They kind of fit together but I took them in reverse order because of how the text was in Luke. Understand what I'm doing here. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. And I'm not even going to preach it in the whole context of Deuteronomy. I'm just looking at this, at this one bit of teaching here. And here's the main point I'm working towards this morning. Because he first so loved us, we are to love God with total devotion in all of life. It might sound like something in the New Testament. I wrote it that way on purpose. It's the Bible. Because he first so loved us, we, therefore, are to love God with total devotion in all of life. And understand, he so first loved us. That's not at one particular time in the past that's he has been a loving father to us. That is, loving in the past and loving right now and loving us into the future because he has loved us like that. So loved us. Thus loved us. We should love him with everything always. That's what we're going to work on this morning. But let me read Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
So you heard right there in the middle. That was Luke 10, 27, referencing right there in the middle. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So Moses puts it. So I got two observations from that passage. Here's the first one. And it's our first point because it's God's first point. And really, you got to see this. Half of the sermon is about the order. This comes first. And that right there is half the sermon. This comes first. If you get these things backwards, then inappropriately in our minds, what rises up first is, is the command of God, and we can in, inaccurately believe, okay, God gives orders to me, I follow those orders, and if I follow those orders, then I become pleasing and acceptable to God. Other way around, that's half the point. So here's the first point. God first reveals his transcendent glory and his specific love for his people. That's first. And he reveals, not just in an abstract, detached way of, let me tell you a bit of information, that's part of revealing, but he reveals it in the sense of Luke 10. He opens our eyes and we see it in an embracing, welcoming way. He first reveals himself to us. He reveals his transcendent glory and his specific love. It's how he shows context. It's how he informs us who he is and who we are and what our relationship with him is already like before he gets around to giving any commands. This is so important. It tells us not only how we stand with God, how we are to view commands, but it also shows us how it is that he means, that he means for us to look at commands, approach commands, and work hard in obedience. We work hard in obedience of commands from a sure foundation, not to get onto a foundation. Very important that we not miss that and that we not then thinking in reverse, think, well, I can't, I can't get works involved in this as a way to be saved, so I better just downplay the works. No, 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 we, we don't downplay the works. We put the works in the right spot. We lift up the importance of working and put it second. This is the pattern in Deuteronomy in the very passage itself. When Moses introduces it, he begins by setting before us, before his audience, God, calling us to consider him and who he is. Hear, O Israel. That's where this begins. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the Lord we're talking about. This is the Lord who's talking to us. Hear. Deuteronomy, it twice says his proper name, the Lord, the Lord. If you were to look at it, you'd see it written in capital letters because it is his name, not just his title. The name that he spoke to Moses at the burning bush. Read about that in Genesis. He is the one who is. That's what his name means. I am. I had no beginning. I just am. And the intention of this introduction is to set him in front of the audience 
about to give a command, but to set him in front of the, the listening audience, the congregation gathered, and point out, this one is God. Think about him. Think about him, not think about what he commands. Think about him, because he is the one and only true God. The, the world is full of nations and peoples and religions and all kinds of so-called gods, and they are just human imagination and demonic in origin. There is only one true God. And in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. Hear, O Israel. Think with imagination here. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth, and he hovered over the face of the waters when the earth was formless and void and said, let there be light. By the power of this God's own word, he made something from nothing at all. And the creation then was. All of this, it was and it is an awesome display of his power and creativity and beauty and wisdom and love meant to draw out from us praise and adoration and wonder. Whoever made this must be an awesome and mighty God. And he made people then, Adam and Eve, in his own image to be his agents on earth and to worship and to commune with him and to enjoy him. And when they sinned, he sheltered them in the consequences, not, not without consequence, but he sheltered them within the consequences to protect them. And then he began to multiply them and he brought forth Abraham and he promised to Abraham a place and a people I will bring forth from you, Abraham, a faithful people, and I will put you in a safe place. And through you, I'm going to bless the nations. And that people grew, and God saved them from calamity into Egypt. And then when bondage arose, saved them out of bondage in Egypt, carrying them away with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And he met them on Sinai. And picture it with your imagination. Do you remember this? As the mountain quaked and smoked and fire burned on it and a voice came out of it. This is the Lord. And he gave them a good, good law in which he promised them a king to rule over them, a priestly connection, a land of rest, this is the Lord that Moses knew. This is what Moses means when he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, that Lord, do you remember? The one who made all this, who made us, who brought us out and is about to bring us in. And they stand there on the, on the cusp of, of brought out but not yet brought in. And he says, Look at God. So they can look. But we can look at more. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. This one and only God sent his son. He sent him to earth to be a keeper of the promise, to, to to be a king and to make a people and to free from bondage, to repair the brokenness and to redeem a people. And what, what did we see? What, what's part of the privilege of being in this time that Moses didn't see? Well, we get to see him. Remember Luke 4, walk into the wilderness and do what the people led by Moses could not do. 
They could not defeat Satan. They could not, could not put down Satan's temptations, but this one does. And then, full of the Spirit, he begins to lay waste to Satan's kingdom. He begins to lay waste. And we see healing and power. We see authority over demons. We see broad, wide compassion for people. This is the Lord that the Pharisees and the scribes and the people and the tax collectors and the, and the centurion, that's what they all saw. But we see more than that. We see more than that. <laughs> we are the people of God. And he has done for us more than just lay out in a book something and more than just walk out in front of us some powerful miracle worker. Remember Luke 10? He says, he has chosen, the Father has chosen to open your eyes and to reveal to you because it's his good pleasure, not because we deserve it, because it's his good pleasure. He's chosen to open our eyes and reveal to us this one this Jesus, who is he really? He is the Messiah, which means he's the one that not just promises, but the one who fulfills. He's the one who actually does bring us into all of what was foretold, promised. He keeps it. We see him knowingly because God has chosen to reveal him to us. This is the Lord who from eternity past chose us in Christ. Let me say that again and think about that. From eternity past, He chose you in Christ. He chose to open your eyes so that you could see, you could understand. In eternity past, He chose to adopt you one day as children of Abraham and to bring you into all of those promises. And then he sent his son to come get you. To come get you. If you think about that, what it means is, what he's trying to reveal to you is that you've been an object of his affection forever past, and then a target of a hunt. A blessed hunt. He didn't come to earth randomly. He came to earth particularly. Gloriously. How do you understand the message of, of the gospel? How do you understand the, the need for it? Why do you understand the concept of alienation, not as an intellectual concept, but as a personal concept? How do you see that and feel it? Or if, if at some point you come to see it and feel it, perhaps even right now, if you see it and feel it, how is that? Because God has opened your eyes and showed you need and showed you answer. And how is there an answer? Because he provided it. We were dead in sin and blind, so the Bible says. And then God said, let there be light a second time, not just in Genesis 1, but in your life in a moment. Let there be light, and he shone in and illumined you, and you see and so are saved. 
This is the Lord of glory that you see him now shining in all of his brilliance and you see him particularly as you see him silent like a lamb led to slaughter. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For those among every tongue and tribe and nation who trust him. And you see the magnitude of what it means not to trust him because those who don't trust him, sin remains on them. A terrible tragedy. But there he is, you see him. Silent led to slaughter and hung on a cross sufficient to pay for any sin. So with open eyes, you then see here is freedom from bondage. Captive set free. This is the exodus writ large in, in, in the world. And when he comes out from the grave, he proves that access to life is available forever. And then you have more than that. Because this God did not just save you, did not just pardon you and then leave you to yourself here promising one day there will be more. But even in this moment now, the love of God has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Given so that this God will live inside of you. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And then as forgiven people, he moved in and took up residence within us. And so means to lead us all through life, to, to bathe us, particular ministries of the Holy Spirit, to bathe us in the reality, the felt reality of the presence of God in your moment-by-moment -moment life. To give to you within a sense, a taste of the wide, long, high, deep love that God has for you. And to show you he loved you before you were born. He loves you now. He will love you all the way clean through on into the end of eternity if there was such a thing. If that wasn't oxymoronic. The Spirit of God lives in you to testify to that. I am a beloved one. I am a saint. I am a child. He is my father. He is my dad. He is the king. He has claimed me. He has saved me. Hear, O Israel, this, the Lord, your Lord, is the one and only God. That's who is, and he is yours. We go through all of that from Genesis 1 all the way up to the present and pushing our minds on into the future. We go through all of that because that's what Moses would, if he were speaking in this time, in the privileged spot that we live in, if he was in this pulpit, that's what he would mean to download into that first phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he would want all of that to leap to your minds. That one is the one and only. That one is God. And he's your God. He's yours. He's yours. You're his. It is so easy to read a command about love that's coming and to forget or to overlook or downplay who he is and what he has shown us about himself and to, to minimize the downplay to forget we love because he first loved us. This is how he first loved us. 
This is how he first loved us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. This must be great and grand and large. And it must come before the command. Because when all that grows fuzzy and foggy and distant, and it can, and then the pressures and pains and distractions and other lovely offers of the world aren't fuzzy and foggy and distant at all, but are clear and present. That's how life goes. When all that this world presents to us is clear and obvious, it is easy to set aside the commandment, loyal love to me, not to that. It's easy to set that aside and to love the world and to love ourselves if we have not got a a vast picture of who this one is and how he has loved us. So a significant ministry of the Holy Spirit, which I just kind of implied, a significant ministry of the Holy Spirit given to us is to call to mind and to press into us beyond an intellectual sense, but to press into us in a felt sense who this God is and what his love for us is. And to give you a clear Felt appreciation and certainty of that. He wants to create something in us that maybe works a bit like this. We have a a family with a newborn in the church, but it isn't hard to imagine for the rest of us. You deliver a newborn to them, and and maybe as happened with this family, there's there's some difficulty along the way, some, some concern and some fear, and maybe that serves actually heighten if, if that's possible, to heighten the desire and the love and the affection for this child. There's a love there that exists between parent and, and newborn. That love bond at that moment is very real, very present, very strong, and you really don't even have to tell one of those parents, now take care of this child. Duh. Of course. You know, don't, don't forget about her. Overlook her. How can they forget about her? It's all they think about. Right? Because this is so real and so present and so strong, unavoidable. It's, it's what consumes your heart and your mind. And, you know, the, the, new, the, the father of the newborn has to go off to work and half the time struggles even wanting to do that, and then half the time while it works struggles to think about work because his mind is where? Right? I mean, men are compartmentalized, so we can manage to think about work. But half the time, daydreaming-wise, you run back, and nobody has to tell you. Now remember, you have a baby. Care for her. Because this is so real. Half the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to, is to do this and to strengthen this and to, to remind, to present to us in, in intellectual ways and in felt ways, behold your God. Behold your God. 
your God. God, behold him. See him in all of this. See what is most glorious about him. This is the Lord who saves. He saves the creation that he made, renewing it. And one day in the end, he will roll up this earth and make a new one, sin and curse free, the true land of promise rest, the new heaven and the new earth. He's going to do that. He will save the creation what he made. And he saves his own glory and reputation, his honor. He's not thwarted by the rebellion and the deception of Satan. And in fact, he's using Satan. And in his very great mercy, in his great grace, in his great power, in his great wisdom, and in particular, his love for you, he saves his people from our sin. Hold your God. We were condemned, and He made a just pardon. We were enslaved, and He broke our bonds. We were blind, and He opened our eyes and gave sight. We were dead, and He brought us to life. We were poor, and He made us rich heirs of a vast treasure. Aliens, and He brought us home, and orphans, and He made us children of His. It is all by God's doing. Salvation is of the Lord. By His grace alone, not by anything we have done so that none of us can boast. This is His transcendent glory and majesty and it is His specific love and faithfulness to us. This is the Lord our God. Hear, O Israel, this Lord our God. This Lord is the one and only and so you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Which flows quite naturally. It fits. It's like telling a parent of a newborn, take care of that one. Sure, yeah, right, of course. I'm about three-quarters way through my time and haven't got to the commandment yet. That's on purpose. All of that, if you followed, why I said half the point is the structure, if you follow the structure of this, you'll see all of that makes the next bit of this kind of sure, right. We struggle with the sure and the right because we didn't get all that. We breeze through it, falls behind us, pales in comparison to the, the stuff coming at us from the world that entices us and lures us. And so may the Spirit of God, may other Christians around us, may your regular time in the Word and prayer bring this one back before you. And in so doing, it'll move us to the second point. Total loving devotion is our required and reasonable act of worship. Not to get us to that, but because of that. It is our required and reasonable act of worship. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's Moses. And you'll recall, if we read it in Luke, Luke adds in mind, which Moses would have included in the word heart, as we'll see. And if you read it in Matthew or in Mark, it's slightly different in those different places. It's all a bit different, but it's all the same. It means with all of your all. You shall love this Lord completely. And love is not just about emotion, uh, some sort of a warm fuzzy. Deuteronomy is about covenant. It's about affirming covenant. So the big context in Deuteronomy is two parties that are in a covenant that one has initiated with the other. And back in that day, covenants frequently used the language of love to mean faithful loyalty. Faithful loyalty, not just lip service to, but faithful loyalty, devotion. So he's not just saying you shall feel a warm fuzzy for God, but that you shall be warmly, fully, totally, completely in the heart devoted to him, loyal. All of me on the table for you. That's the right and natural response to what we just saw about this God. But to help us think through with a little more detail, we have these various words. And I'm going to pick the three words that Moses uses rather than the other words in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But as I do that, it's important to understand these are just various general subcategories. They are not hard and fast, such that some piece of us is in one category and not in the other. There's a lot of overlap, particularly between heart and soul in Moses. So these are just general subcategories to kind of help us think through in a little more detail what does it mean to give all of my all to him? Well, it means to give him all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my might. So we'll take those and look at those three categories. How should I devote myself to God? With all of your heart. Biblically speaking, the heart, we might call it the contemplation center. It's where we receive information and respond to it, process it, and then develop values, perspectives, desires, a will. So it would include emotion, but it's not only emotion also thought. It's the life of the mind, the life of the will. So to respond to God with total devotion of heart would include, and so as I'm saying this, the question to you is, how do you, where don't you express devotion to God with these parts of your life? It would include intentional attention to what's going on in my processing of the world. We sometimes just, just live like this. But if I'm going to love God with my heart, I've, I've got to like put a little stop sign there. Something comes in, before it comes out, it like stops. And I take that captive and submit it to the truth. Submit it to to the scripture, submit to Christ and say, what is that? And evaluate it. This is, this is the guarding of the heart that the, that the Bible will talk about. 
I don't just take in and, as one book we were reading recently says, watch unwatchingly. I don't watch the world. I don't watch TV. I don't, I don't just take in unwatchingly, but I take in and observe. What is that? I evaluate it, and I see how it hits me and what's true. There's a, a deliberate intention there. And I care to do that because I want this inside, this processing center in me, to be of honor to God. I want to guard my heart. Life's going to come out of it, so I want to guard it. It's easiest to let just things come in unfiltered, to interact with nature and science and politics and current events and, and people, including our own feelings, the monologue that we're kind of speaking in our own minds, and just let that be and not stop and question it. But when we stop and question it, what, what are we questioning it with? The scriptures. So part of guarding my heart, question to you then, do you guard your heart with the scriptures? How much attention do you give to the Bible? It's not going to happen if you don't give attention to the revealed truth. We will not successfully love the Lord with all of our heart if we do not give attention to the revealed truth. Perhaps in your personal Bible study, perhaps you hear it taught, you hear it taught in a, in a Bible study or on the radio or something, you give attention to that, and then like a Berean, you sift it and say, am I hearing argument from the text? Am I hearing proper use of grammar? Is this person treating this writing like we usually treat writing? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot we could say about how to study the Bible. The point is, are you attending to the Scriptures and attending to it properly because that's the lens through which we have to read the world. I cannot guard my heart unless I give my mind to thinking God's thoughts after him properly. Love God with all your heart and with all your soul. As I said, soul and heart have a lot of overlap in Moses, and sometimes they're used actually to describe the very same things. But where there's a difference, soul can be used just to describe the person, him or herself. And a soul can be said to act and do things like eat. You can read where a soul eats or a soul buys things or is bought. So you can use that word in the exact same way you use heart, but the difference, which I'm going to lean on here for the sake of different discussion, the difference comes up when you see this one acting in the world. So if the heart, if we want to think about my inside, my processing, my contemplating, perhaps the next one, love the Lord with all of your soul, we should think more about with all my expression with what's coming out of me. What others would see as they look at me, my facial expressions, my words, my actions. So consider soul as the lived out me, who I am expressed. 
You're submitted to Christ in every moment as you go along, and it shows as I express myself. So here's where this discussion kind of, kind of moves for me. I, be, I begin to think about, well, certainly, I'm, I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. There, we don't aspire to not have our actions, our expression, honor the Lord, be devoted to the Lord. Yeah, I know. Of course not. The challenge here, the call here, is to, I, is to and a people that I assume already agree with it, and it's to kind of put it in front of you and say, do you attend to that? It's kind of attacking the disconnect between what, what I say I am and what I actually am and saying, close the gap. Deliberately. Give thought to the gap and then give thought to closing it. So I say I'm a, I'm a Christian, and I say I care about truth, and I'm, I'm playing a, a game with several other guys, and to my mind comes a particular rule in the game. This, this actually happened to me. A particular rule in the game that if applied in this situation would be negative to me, and I skipped it. Next turn, same situation arises, except now the shoe's on the other foot, and that rule applied would be to my benefit. And as the other guy began to apply that rule to my benefit, I noticed the gap. And I was caught. What do I do with that? I want to love the Lord my God with all my soul. So I attempt to close the gap and I brought up, you know, we didn't apply that last term. I probably should have, but I didn't think we were doing that in this situation. But I guess we were and I made a mistake. And we talked about it then a little further and worked it all out. That is so small. Who cares? Who cares, right? No. If the danger here, I'm talking about me, but let me, just, let me say a person. If a person does not care to love the Lord his God or her God with all heart and all soul, but only in the biggies, you won't in the biggies. You, you are who you are in the little moments, especially when nobody actually is aware of which is, what just happened there. It's only going on in your head. That's when the Lord says, is all of you mine or just the most important parts the, as you determine them? And I have to say, you have to say, we, if, if we want to say, this is what I aspire to be, and that's the God who is, then all of me, including the minuscule, unimportant, stupid little rules in a silly game. I, I want integrity in the heart, and I want integrity in the hands. See, we, 
we must think about this, and this is why it's really important that we get the order right, of Christians who work hard with all of our might, the third one, at obeying the Lord. We have to be able to say, work hard with all of our might at obeying the Lord and say it second. Certain of His vast, wide, long, high, deep, unchanging love for you. Unchanging. But the appropriate and required response to that is not to say, eh, close enough. I'm mostly sanctified and generally holy. No. The Bible talks about holiness and calls us to obedience constantly, always second. Because of what has happened, and what has happened is not just in the past, what has happened is in the present and in the future. He has loved you thus with a vast, long, wide, high, deep, immense, great, glorious love that secures you now and promises tomorrow, this is the important piece, promises tomorrow to meet you with grace when you say, Little things like, you know, we didn't actually apply that rule last time when it would have gone against me. He will meet me in little things and in more important things. He will meet me on the other side of obedience with honor and grace. I feel like that's going to be bad. That's why I sinned. And he says, no, it won't. Walking with me is good. Trust me, follow me, obey me. And work with all your might at that. The third one. So we have to think about might in the sense of try hard, work, strive. That's not opposed to grace. Grace actually empowers us towards obedience, not relieves us from the need to obey. It empowers us towards obedience. He accomplishes that in us. But you're going to have to make choices and, and, and be deliberate in thought. We're people. That's how, that's how we live. So we work at it. And really, you can see I'm rolling, both, I'm rolling this third one back onto the first two. I, I seek to guard my heart and love him with what's going on inside with all my might. And I seek to, to love him with what I express with all my might. I've got to think about it that way. But also we need to think about this might in the sense of our possessions and power. You can, you can see where I'm going with this if you ask the question, from what do I derive my strength? What makes me strong? What's, what's, what is my power? And some of us, obviously, a clear one would be money. I, I'm powerful because I have money, but that's not all. I'm perhaps politically or socially or relationally connected. I'm white and I speak English. I'm a male. There's, there's power in that. Really, there is. And if you've ever noticed that, if you've ever been in a situation where, and some of us I know in this congregation have been in a situation where there's someone of a different skin color with very broken English trying to deal with the system in America, and you just pick up the phone and call them, what do you know, it all got worked out. What do you know, it all got worked out. Because there's some power in English. There's some power in native. Love the Lord with all of that. Do you seek to leverage what you have 
to love the Lord, to, to express devotion to the Lord with everything that you have, your education perhaps, certainly your money and your possessions. But you seek to say, this right here, I can use that, and I am attentive to find ways. I want to love him with everything that I have, and I'm going to be attentive to ways that I can use this to express loyal devotion to this God who has so loved me. And right there, I'll just mention because I'm out of time, I can't say much more about this. That's how we see, this is totally connected to love your neighbor as yourself. Because everything that I was just talking about is going to impact my neighbor. Which is why, if you follow through Deuteronomy, what does he say? Let this be in your heart and on your wrist and on your forehead and on the gate of your house and on your doorpost of, on the gate and on the doorpost of your house. Never meant to be literal. Always meant to be figurative. When people interact with you, when you reach out your hand in the business place to sign the contract, what do they see on your hand? I love the Lord my God with all my heart and I love you as myself. Do they see that in what you're doing? When they watch you in the street, what do they see on your forehead? Do they see these words written on me? These are, are all over me. I love God and I love you. When they pass by your house, when they come hang out in your home, what's the atmosphere of your house? I love the Lord. I am devoted to him with everything because he has so loved me and therefore I'm yours. Is that what they see? They're, they're completely connected, inseparable, such that we cannot say, well, they don't see any of that on me, but I do love the Lord. No, you don't. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor ourselves is the greatest commandment. Upon these things hang all the law and the prophets. And we don't do it very well. All I'm going to say here because it's 1202 is that's why the gospel is. That's why that's why, that's why they're the gospel. Believe the gospel. You talk total and you talk all. <laughs> Are we kidding? Yeah, I know. That's why the gospel. Because I need to be forgiven of my failure and moved to follow his decrees. That's why the gospel. That I am forgiven of my failure. And then as the gospel about this God who saves is lifted up in front of me again and again as the Spirit of God opens my eyes to that anew today in my failure, when I think about the rule and I don't apply it, and I see I'm a sinner more than I thought, and I see my failure, and then I see clean, beloved son. My soul is lifted up. I am... I am raised up and I want to follow him I want to honor him so the gospel forgives and the gospel moves us thank God for the gospel a gospel that empowers us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart 
and all of our soul and all of our strength. And in so doing, to love our neighbors ourselves, selflessly and sacrificially. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd fill in the gaps and you would make clear what was unclear and you would move us, your people, further into this great commandment. We need you to move us, Lord. You, you say that's, that's what you will do. You will move us to follow your decrees. So please do that. Maybe there are some of us here now who are particularly, particularly struggling with something that just came to mind. I pray you would remind them of your forgiving truth in the gospel and that that would strike them as fresh and amazing, in fact. Would you please impress upon them and on all of us the wonder of your love and the certainty of your favor. That you, this God who made everything, has come to save me is amazing. Make that real. Make that fresh in people's lives, in, in individual people's lives, please, Lord. Tighten up the bond, the bond of affection between us and you, and then lay on top of that tight bond the command to loyally love you. That's the work of the Spirit in our lives, so please do that. That's our prayer. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.